It's Friday night and we're heading to a neighboring town for dinner. I'm maybe six years old. The cab of the truck I'm sitting in is filling up with smoke from my stepfather's Marlboro Red. I try not to let the abrasive smoke make me cough. If I don't make a fuss about it and I ask nicely, maybe he'll roll down the windows so I can get some relief from the harsh secondhand smoke. I ask, can you please roll down a window? Annoyed, he does as I ask. When we get to the restaurant, we sit in the smoking section. It's almost unbearable. A confined half of the restaurant full of people who smoke so frequently they can't make it through a meal without lighting up. I know it shouldn't be this way. If I cough, I'll be told to knock it off. If I complain, I'll be shamed for pouting. I never really understood why my stepfather saw my inability to tolerate the cigarette smoke as an act of defiance by a petulant child, rather than a little boy who simply wanted to enjoy his mac and cheese. My stepfather wasn't always so cold, but his four-packs-a-day smoking habit was the sorest of subjects. I played a confusing game with myself. Hold in your anger. Hold in your discomfort for fear of being shamed. Or maybe cough. Cough just a little so he'll have pity on you and put out his cigarette until we're done eating. If he's had a really great day, that might work this time. I had it good in so many ways, better than most kids, but still, at that tender age, I felt a storm of rage swirling inside my chest. Some days I'd be more defiant than others, but most days I would behave, I would not pout, and I'd spend most every family dinner wanting to flip the fucking table over. A tiny seed of shame was planted. You do not deserve to breathe. It wouldn't take long for me to learn that this seed of shame would hurt less if I'd just tend the garden myself. I do not deserve to breathe. It was much more manageable. Around the same age, I started to really enjoy playing with Barbies. It's not really that I liked my sister's Barbie dolls more than I liked my G.I. Joes or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's just that they had different outfits I could dress them up in and hair I could play with. I remember my mother telling me it was okay to play with the Barbies, but just don't let your father see. This was a sweet gesture by my very well-meaning mother, but instinctively I knew that something wasn't right. She said, don't let your father see. I heard, there's something wrong with you. Hide it. At that age, my mother was my whole world. Children are so intuitive when it comes to knowing our parents are ashamed of us, and that was a kind of pain I had a very low tolerance for. No, Mommy, don't be ashamed of me. I'll be ashamed of myself, so you and Dad don't have to. I didn't know it then, but I had learned a defense mechanism that would help me survive my childhood and cripple me as an adult. Whatever mean or hurtful things I was afraid others would think about me, I would just think them first. To soften the blow. When I was eight years old, my mother and stepfather told me that my stepfather would be adopting my sister and me, 
and that we would be taking his last name. My stepfather had been in my life since my earliest memories, so on one hand it was a happy conversation. We were officially becoming a family. On the other hand, there was something confusing and profoundly sad about this. My mom explained that there would no longer be weekend visits with my biological father and that he was more or less going to be like an uncle. It took many years to piece together all the reasons this happened. The story, as I understand it now, is that for several years my father refused to pay child support. Eventually, my mother gave him an ultimatum. She would have his wages garnished for the child support payments, or he could give up his legal right to be our father and let our stepfather adopt us. He chose the latter. And here's where the story gets really fucked up. My father was not a deadbeat. He had a very healthy income. He was not a drunk nor a druggie. He simply did not want us. My mom says the reason she ultimately divorced him was because he would not help her pay for my baby formula and diapers. Throughout my life, I have worn this like a stain on my soul that I can't wash out. No matter how much I know intellectually that this was not my fault, sometimes I can't help but believe I really am as worthless as my father must have thought I was. Like a dog that was too much trouble and sent back to the pound. There would be more pain, more indications that I don't actually exist, like the time my biological father bought my sister diamond earrings and a vanity for her birthday, only to completely ignore my birthday three weeks later, or the time my stepfather skipped my high school graduation party to shoot pool in a billiards tournament, some might seem insignificant, but put it all together and you've got the perfect storm for me to basically hate the fuck out of myself. If it hadn't been for my mom, I don't think I would know what real love is supposed to feel like. In my adolescent and teen years, I learned that a really great way to hide the pain and shame I carried was to simply be perfect. Just be perfect. Never stop smiling. Be funny. Be so fucking nice to everyone that they can't help but like you. Get skinny, goddammit. Don't you dare be fat, you disgusting pig. Wear the right clothes. Frost the tips. Get straight A's. Nail the trumpet solo. Join every fucking club in school and be president of every fucking club. Don't you dare let on that you're gay. Star in the play. Write the op-ed. Lead the marching band. Get all the scholarships. Speak at graduation. Move to Hollywood and become a star. Does daddy fucking love you yet? Like so many people who try to hide their emptiness with a veneer of perfection, I felt dead inside. But at 18, I discovered something that made me feel very much alive. Sex. Having left Farmer City and moved to Hollywood, I learned something that was quite confusing. Men found me sexy. I had never been around gay men in my little farm town, so it was really quite a shock to be treated like I was a catch. It certainly didn't fit my image of myself as a worthless slob. Now I had value. Now I had something to fuel my self-esteem. Now I meant something to someone. 
If I'm sexy and attractive, I'm desirable. And desirable is the opposite of worthless. Once I had a taste of how it feels to be desired and loved by a man, I became really consumed. I was always looking to partner up. At a time when I should have been focused on my studies and my career, I spent much more time seeking validation through attention from men. I became an insatiable flirt. Real vulnerability and intimacy is too frightening. Let's just talk about dicks and blowjobs. Feeling shitty? Well, this model wants to bang me, so I must be alright. I needed love, but I had been programmed to think love without pain was less valuable than the love I had to struggle and fight for. So if anybody treated me too well, it scared me away. I stuck with the guys who treated me more like my fathers did. The ones who were cold, verbally abusive, and didn't have time for me. It didn't feel good, but it felt like home. At 23, a miracle happened. I met an angel. An honest-to-God angel who loved me unconditionally. I fell for him instantly. A beautiful Latino man named David with sparkling eyes and a mischievous smile. His body looks like it was sculpted by Michelangelo himself. He makes love the way I imagine Zorro, Zac Efron, and Ricky Martin would if you could put them together. And that's not even the good stuff. He is the most kind, generous person I have ever met. I struggle to find one thing about myself that I wouldn't change to be more like him. I think it was fate that he was in a long-term relationship when we met. He and I both, despite falling for each other quickly, respected his relationship, and in my mind he was completely off-limits. What a miracle! He was off-limits! It forced us to establish a friendship. It broke me out of my disastrous pattern. Jumping into bed with him so he could fuck me and forget me wasn't an option. I didn't have to play all those dating games, try to be sexy or perfect. I just got to be Lucas. And David loved Lucas. When David's relationship ended and he said he would like to date me... It started a honeymoon that has lasted seven and a half years and counting. Little did I know, however, that this would mark the beginning of my biggest challenge to date. Convincing myself that I was worthy of my husband's unwavering love and support. I had found a man more perfect than any fantasy I could have crafted in my wildest dreams. Now I would struggle with the pain of never believing I deserve him. In reality, my husband and I are equals. We're a team, we're a beautiful couple, and we complement each other. The story in my mind is different. He's Mary, and I'm Rhoda's ugly stepsister. He's Jessica Simpson, and I'm Ashley Simpson's pimple. He's Leo DiCaprio in Titanic, and I'm Leo in The Aviator, at the end when he was an old recluse pissing in milk bottles. We'll be dressing up for an event, and he'll ask me how he looks. I'll see what he's wearing and how sharp he looks. For a moment, I'll melt at the sight of how devastatingly charming he is. Then my thoughts will turn to... My God. People are going to wonder what the hell he's doing with this sack of dumplings on his arm. 
the way I talk to and about myself sometimes is at best vicious. I can't think of a living person I would treat with the cruelty and obscenity that I do myself. And yes, I realize Ann Coulter is still alive. I wish there were, like, insane asylums, but for losers like me, where they could be like, you tried, you really did, but give up. Just eat Skittles and roll around in mud for the rest of your life. That's something I said on a particularly hard day a few months back. But I said it out loud to my husband. My husband, who I know deep within my soul loves me more than life, has to listen to me attack myself in vile and horrible ways. For years I didn't understand. I was just venting and I was only talking about myself. So I wasn't hurting anybody, right? But now I know. When I say those vicious things, when I put myself down, it's like I've grabbed a knife and stabbed myself. But it isn't me who bleeds. It's my husband, the last person on earth I'd ever want to harm. My husband has been the only person who is safe enough for me to be 100% unguarded. That means he bears the unfortunate burden of being the only person who gets me in all my ugliness. I talk to him sometimes about my insecurities. He says he would never leave me. In my soul, I know he never will. But in my brain, I feel I can be so unbearable that it's conceivable he would just want to escape from under my dark cloud. And I think so little of myself that I wouldn't blame him for it one iota. I became obsessed with the fantasy of him cheating on me or having an affair. This way, he could be sleeping with the kind of gorgeous Adonises worthy of a man so perfect. And I would feel a kind of perverse comfort because it would reinforce my negative self-image. Again, it wouldn't feel good, but it would make sense to me because it fits my narrative that I do not and never will deserve unconditional love. Ordinarily at this point, I'd be well beyond what I'm comfortable sharing publicly, but we're just going to have to file this under no fucks left to give. And let me tell you why. It seems like every year I lose another friend to suicide or addiction. Some pain that was just too intense to bear. The rest of us were too fragile to admit we had issues. We were too busy using Facebook to make our lives look like a champagne version of the never-ending possible at Olive Garden. We crafted an image so perfect that sometimes the help we needed just wasn't there. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sick of all that. I don't want to be nice anymore. I'd rather be authentic. Sometimes the voice of love doesn't call you sugar and ask you to come sit on mama's lap. Sometimes the voice of love says, don't play that phony bullshit. Not with me. You know what happens when we talk about our pain to a friend with an open heart? It gets better. You know what happens when we find out the people all around us are struggling with the same shit we are? It gets easier. This is how we heal.
Shame can only survive in darkness. I began by sharing three anecdotes from my childhood. A significant part of my healing journey has been putting together a coherent narrative. How did I get here? Who told me I was worthless? Why did I believe them? Piece by piece, I can sort the fact from fiction. I hear a voice that says, you're not good enough, and I know it isn't mine. That's my dad or my first boyfriend, and I kindly tell that voice to fuck right off. I know the reality is that inside me, there is a ball of cosmic energy, and it is a thing of beauty, deep love, and profound wisdom. It is my true nature. My friends and acquaintances would be so lucky if I could be brave enough to let them see it. And I know, I know, this is what my husband sees. And somehow, by the grace of God, he can't see anything else. I've learned that it's impossible for me to loathe and despise myself without it spilling over into the way I treat others. That venom will always find its way out, usually in extremely passive-aggressive behavior or outright anger. So I owe it to the people I love, like my mother, and especially my dear husband, to fight, to try my hardest every day to speak think and act from that place of love within. At 31 years, I have learned that no accomplishment or accolade, no flattery or mind-blowing sex can build me up as much as simply presenting my open heart to another person and having them receive me in kindness. Now I've made a career out of helping other people like me feel heard, feel understood, feel alive. And when we accomplish that goal, there is no greater feeling in the world. I learned that there is power in knowing that sometimes it's the love we didn't get. Sometimes it's the need that went unmet that makes us beautiful. We all have wounds, but we don't have to be emotional invalids. We can turn our wounds into a badge of honor. We can look to them to find our greatest gifts. We can let them teach us empathy, compassion, and how to love. My clients and I explore our darkness and apply love to the places that hurt. When we quit trying to ignore away the pain and instead make friends with it, we increase our ability to tolerate it, and we increase our capacity for aliveness. You cannot truly love a rainbow if you hate yellow. You must accept all your colors to experience the full beauty of being alive. And the opposite of dead isn't happy. The opposite of dead is alive. So I don't strive to be happy. I strive to live. And I feel myself coming to life more and more with each passing year. Thank you. 31.